0: Welcome to the Come, Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come, Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, the Lord says, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their heart, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. My question for this morning is, what can or must parents do to assist the Lord so that His law becomes internalized in the hearts of their children? As some parents here can attest, it's not that easy. I love the beautiful story in the Book of Mormon of the prophet King Benjamin. A great example to all parents, by the way, who, after a lifetime of loving, teaching, and working alongside his people, delivered such a profound sermon to them as he approached the time of his death that the entire community was converted to Jesus Christ. The Spirit had touched their hearts so completely that they knew of the truth of his words and had no more disposition to do evil but had a desire to do good continually. They had become the children of Christ, his sons, and his daughters. What a wonderful thing to happen to these people. In Mosiah we read that all, except the little children, had been taught the commandments, and every one of the community, except the little children, took upon themselves the name of Christ. The verses which note that the little children weren't old enough to partake of the sermon are foreshadowings, because the scriptures return to some of these youngsters later as adults. Quote, now, it came to pass there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people. And they did not believe the traditions of their fathers. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. Quote. What went wrong? How was it these deeply committed Christian parents, spiritually diligent people, likely to be furiously active in church, missed raising their children in such a way that these children also possessed a strong religious faith? As you know, four of the unbelievers were grandsons of the prophet King Benjamin. Ammon, Aaron, Omni and, Omner, and Himni didn't believe Grandpa's words about Christ. Using the scriptural example as a metaphor, again my question is, what can parents do to help their children internalize the religious faith of their fathers and mothers, or assist the Lord in putting His law in their inward parts and writing it in their hearts? Now I hasten to add that I am not suggesting these ancient parents necessarily did anything wrong. There is a tendency both in the Church and in my profession. To blame parents for the errors of their children. We are too prone to forget agency, sometimes biological factors, and the concept of bidirectional influence—that is, that children influence their parents as well as parents influence their children. President Howard W. Hunter has commented on the critical importance of remembering agency that parents can only do what they can do. They cannot do what children must do for themselves. "Quote: The successful parent is one who is loved, one who is sacrificed, and one who is cared for, taught, and ministered to the needs of the child. In other words, the parent who does what he or she can do is a successful parent, even though the child may choose to disregard the offering. The inculcation of values, particularly religious commitment, is an affective or emotional as well as cognitive process, which at its center includes loving, sacrificing, caring for and ministering to, as well as teaching. The parenting relationship to children represents an invitation to link spiritually across generations in sharing traditions, a culture, a life way, in bonds of love beyond biology. Still, our parenting invitation, after all we can do, is ultimately left to the child to embrace or reject. I am, however, going to talk about influences. We can, as parents or individuals, make it more likely or more difficult for children to develop religious faith. What do the scriptures teach? In summary, Raise up your children in light and truth. Teach them to believe and follow the commandments of God. To be teachers, though, we must first have been and continue to be students ourselves. Some of you recently returned missionaries may know the unsettling speed with which the joys of the scriptures depart from your hearts when Math 111 or American Heritage Examinations displace your daily scripture study. You can't teach what you don't believe or feel committed to yourself. Parents are tradition bearers, and one's faith must be kept alive and growing in order for it to be felt as true to children who listen and watch them. As Paul says, Faith cometh by hearing the word for ourselves as well as our little ones. And for some of us parents, our little ones are big ones like you. There's strong evidence that narrative, the stories we tell or hear, may be the most natural register for learning about human behavior. Some of the work of David Dallahide of BYU and Family Stories, and the research of Richard Bonfort, also of BYU, suggest that people can teach most deeply their fundamental beliefs in personal stories. Stories in which listeners and the storyteller participate together in that recognizable, oh, I know what you mean, elements of the story. Bonefort is finding that people really do share their religious testimonies. One of my favorite essayists, Wendell Berry, has written, quote, When a community loses its memory, its members no longer know one another. How can they know one another if they have forgotten or never learned one another's stories? If they do not know one another's stories, how can they know whether or not to trust one another? People who do not trust one another do not help one another, and moreover, they fear one another. This morning, I invite you to share with me some of my stories that we may be strengthening each other in our community. Children are uncomfortably adept at seeing through insincerity and sometimes startlingly open about stating it. I remember taking my son with me to the grocery store once when he was about four years old. At the checkout counter when he wanted a candy bar, I responded, I'm sorry, Matt, I don't have enough money for a candy bar. I thought that was a clever response. I was telling him I didn't want to while hiding behind words which suggested I didn't have enough money. That night, when I told him it was time to go to bed, he responded, Sorry, Daddy, I don't have enough money to go to bed. (laughs) He knew what I was saying. He knew I was saying I didn't want to buy the candy bar, and so he used my manipulative tool words to say he didn't want to go to bed. In communicating our religious tradition, let us not underestimate the perceptiveness of children thinking to hide anything behind words. Children must sense our commitment and honest striving for consistency, even while hopefully recognizing that we, too, are human not without struggles. Indeed, the psychologist William Damon, writing about the development of morality in children, has warned that moral ends cannot be achieved by immoral means because children, especially adolescents, are so quick to depict to detect hypocrisy. He suggests that when we make moral mistakes, it may be quite helpful for our children to watch us as their models, discuss our mistakes, and then especially watch us make amends. A Swedish psychologist distinguished between three categories of religious tradition bearers—the parents. Unconfident transmitters of tradition are parents Who have problems with their own feelings about religion. When their children ask questions about God, these parents are unable to teach faith wholeheartedly because their hearts are still unsettled. They necessarily also communicate their doubts as well because, as I have suggested, children are sensitive to more than just words. Confident transmitters, on the other hand, can teach in an emotionally harmonious way because they are teaching what they love. Moreover, their confidence is apt to follow the children and allow them to grow in the tradition at their own pace, because these parents are also teaching who they love. I suggest to you that the whisperings of the Spirit have a tenderizing effect, teaching us more clearly how to discern the spirits of our children. There are then others described as overconfident transmitters of religious tradition. These people try to influence others with great intensity, as though they were going to try to press the beliefs into the children almost physically. They are likely to be intolerant of any doubt or hesitation on the part of their children, as though it were an affront to their dignity that a son or daughter of theirs would doubt. Research shows that many of the children of the overconfident transmitters reject faith, not because they have considered it carefully, but because they were, in essence, saying, Dad or Mom, if your faith makes you so harsh and demanding, I want nothing to do with it. Back to a Book of Mormon story. Listen for the difference In a faithful and confident transmitter's viewpoint and that of his brothers who were definitely unconfident transmitters. And notice then how your faith as a parent would affect the way you would teach your children. Here's Nephi's account from 1st Nephi chapter 17, quote, We did travel and wade through much affliction in the wilderness and our women did bear children in the wilderness. And so great were the blessings of the Lord upon us. Our women did give plenty of suck for their children and were strong. Now listen to Laman and Lemuel's account, 18 verses later. We have wandered in the wilderness for these many years, and our women have toiled, being big with child. And they have borne children in the wilderness and suffered all things, save it were death. And it would have been better that they had died before coming out of Jerusalem than to have suffered these afflictions." Close quote. I think you can see how differently these three brothers undoubtedly transmitted their religious tradition to their children. They were talking about the same experience, which, because of their faith, was not the same experience at all. As faith is a gift from God and grows by righteous living, the security and joy of Supporting a confident transmitter depends upon our diligence as parents. The development of religious faith in our children must be a central and fundamental goal for us as parents. From Deuteronomy, quote, And thou shalt teach the commandments diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Close quote. In other words, Moses would have our awareness of the blessings of God be so present that it would be a part of all we do. Spiritual nutrition requires daily servings of the bread of life, not just for Sunday dinner. Now let me illustrate and let's apply the Martian observer test. In other words, if you were an alien observer of my behavior, What would you decide was the true purpose of my actions, in spite of what I may think I mean? As mentioned, I am a campus bishop, and each year in the LDS Church we have a tradition called tithing settlement. Bishops review with each member his or her contributions, and these include both tithing funds which go to the building up of the Church and fast offerings, donations for those who need help from the Church. The first time I interviewed a couple who had paid a complete tithing but who had made no fast offerings, I was embarrassed for them. How could they forget that tradition, I thought. Then I imagined what my own children might be learning about my teaching about the paying of fast offerings. I was becoming the Martian observer. The doorbell rings. One of the children says, "Dad." The deacon's here with this blue envelope, and I go to the door of the checkbook. Period. Now I ask the Martian observer, "What was my purpose?" He might answer, "Well, I think you were paying a bill." The deacon looked just like the paper boy collecting for the paper. In fact, wasn't that the paper boy just wearing a tie? My children know more about fasting than that, but perhaps not much more about making a fast offering. I had let the sacred tradition of making an offering of my fast appear to be a habit, about which I neither thought very much or felt the importance to teach. The living story was missing for them in which they themselves participated. They had not heard me say, that when I do think about what I'm doing, I love to make a fast offering because I know how blessed I am by God. They probably have not heard that there have been specific times when I have felt particularly guided because of my participation in fast offerings. As Moses suggests, we must be living, talking stories of faith, aware of its sacred importance in their lives and our own. Consider once more how important it is that our sacred traditions be sacred, not just traditions or habits. If, for instance, I were a Martian observer, what would I conclude was the purpose of how we celebrate, for instance, Memorial Day? If we were watching above what our society does, would I conclude that the purpose of Memorial Day is to shop until you drop, because the mall is having a fantastic one-day-only sale? Or is the purpose of Memorial Day to take flowers to the cemetery and then go on a picnic? Yes. But what is its historical purpose? Why is it important enough to declare a holiday? Do we ourselves feel to honor the servicemen who gave that last full measure of devotion that we might live? Do we teach that? Again, Wendell Berry. He laments that it seems, quote, we have become a nation of fantasists. We believe, apparently, that democratic freedom can be preserved by a people ignorant of the history of democracy and indifferent to the responsibility of freedom, Close quote. Parents are the culture bearers. What are we parents transmitting about the culture? The stories of our country our ancestors, our spiritual forefathers. Notice how often, for instance, Nephi tried to bring his brothers back to faith by pleading with them to remember the faithful stories of the prophet's experiences with God. We can't ask our children to remember if they've never heard the stories. Remembering my son with not enough money to go to bed, I suggest that children are Martian observers watching, sensing, trying to understand, and frequently detecting more about what people are saying than what their words suggest. If you were an observer in my home, would you assume by listening to my family prayers that I was much more concerned that my children be safe and well and get good grades than I was that they remember Jesus Christ? That I'm more concerned that they get home with a small age Safely than that they get home with a capital H safely. Back to the scriptures. From Proverbs, the well known admonition train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Close quote. That seems self explanatory, but part of the embedded message there, I think, is that training up a child is a long process which requires patience and the long view of development with all its unevenness of growths, ups, and downs, both for us as well as them. Internalization of faith doesn't simply occur at age 4 or age 7 or age 16. Parenting takes place in a million small moments of interaction, and children and adolescents adopt or repudiate their parents' values because of the nature of their relationship I suggest to you that King Benjamin, in a sense, parented his people. His love, his sacrifice, and ministering for many years prepared them for that wonderful conversion experience that we read of. Next, from the Book of Mormon, Third Nephi, the words of the Savior, Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and children may be blessed. Now you may ask, are they blessed because you pray that they may be blessed? Or blessed because you have modeled a devotional pattern for them to follow? Or blessed because they have joined you in your story and can be partakers of the whisperings of the Spirit? I suggest all of the above, but it's particularly important that we act our faith not just to train in habits of belief, but to create that sacred invitation for God to confirm in the hearts of our children that his acts are real, that he is there listening and answering our prayers. Thus, we hear in the scriptures, teach the children, share with them worship experiences. And then there are corollary, more affective, perhaps psychological themes that speak to parenting from Ephesians. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Colossians, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. These verses speak to the bond of parents to children so important in the psychological literature on attachment and internalization. The particular verses warn of the danger of parents behaving in ways that provoke rebellion or shame in the children towards the parents which so frequently has to do with humiliating them. Now, you may ask then, why is the parent-child relationship so important to the development of faith? First, the process of internalization is one in which children incorporate external messages from their parents into themselves. That is, things said to me as a child, especially about me, gradually become internal, things that I now say to myself in an interpreted form. Thus, I metaphorically see myself in my mother's eyes and her actions towards me, and I am likely gradually to learn to believe about myself what I see. If I experience mom as soothing and caring, I will be more likely to be able to soothe and care for myself in times when mom is not around. These messages become how I see the world, as though I am learning about life through my parents' eyes. And what then will I see in my parents' eyes when they look at God? A second example from developmental psychology also applies. Have you ever knocked on someone's door and heard a dog barking within furiously? When the owner comes and is glad to see you, Suddenly, the dog's glad to see you, too. We call that social referencing. Similarly, babies who normally go through a period of being frightened of people they don't know may warm up much faster to grandma and grandpa than to other strangers. They look in mama's eyes, see her love of grandma, and trust that grandma must be wonderful. Again, What will our children see in our eyes when we look at God? We should emphasize that attachment is a bi-directional influence. That is, parents attach to their children as well. Excessive attachment in the form of overprotection from the parent can be harmful. Secure attachment frees children to explore, to learn, and develop their competencies. Overprotection, sometimes what we call hover-mothering, teaches children to see themselves as loved, but either incompetent or fragile. There are other scriptures which are equally illustrative, but we can assume that the scriptural counsel to teach also suggests that the atmosphere of teaching is like our discussion of the attachment process, one of nurturing, loving consistency. Let me emphasize teaching for a moment. Teaching, I'm sorry, Telling does not equal teaching. And telling or information dispensing does not equal behavior change. William Damon's research in moral training of children suggests that the attempt to indoctrinate children as simply passive recipients of knowledge just doesn't work. Children need to be active in order to learn, and what they learn depends a great deal on the presentation of the teacher. Probably all of us know adolescents who seem unable to learn or unable to complete the assignments for teachers they don't like. And In my experience, the feelings they just can't seem to get past are the resentments towards teachers who provoke them by demeaning them in class or their classmates. Consider this example. I watched a father teaching his daughter to swim one day several years ago. She was quite frightened of the water. So, of course, since he knew that there's nothing to be afraid of and that he's quite capable of protecting her, he told her to relax. There is nothing to be afraid of. But being told to relax is often an insufficient modifier of a feeling as primitive as fear about water. When she continued to be afraid in spite of the father's telling equals teaching equals behavior change effort, dad became more and more irritated, increasing the volume and insistence of his so-called teaching, which by now was sounding more like demand and command. Soon his daughter was more afraid of her father than she was of the water, and she was now more afraid of the water than before being taught to not be afraid because anxiety is a total body feeling. She was by now looking for any avenue of escape from the situation and did not learn to swim in that session. More important to her development, she had learned more about her father than about swimming. And if these experiences continue in myriads of other small moments of so-called teaching, she will learn more about her feelings about herself being an incapable, fearful child than about the supposed objects of teaching, whatever they might be, because what she internalizes is what Dad is saying to her about her as a person. Remember bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The problem for teaching is the affective packaging of the knowledge that parents wish to impart. In this example, when Dad recognizes that relaxing is a feeling, he may begin to accomplish his goal when he creates a learning situation wherein relaxation and safety are more likely to occur, perhaps by play or letting her ride on his back while he swims. Then he can include the information or cognitive component. When we let our children ride our backs, if you will, in the waters of faith and worship, which are feelings as well, these feelings can be confirmed by our God. We teach best when we are a haven of safety for our children. Finally, in the scriptures as well as research on parenting, there is clearly a behavioral control accountability element in the messages to parents. Perhaps the best example may be found in the same Prophet King Benjamin's address. and you will not suffer your children that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel with one another and serve the devil who is the master of sin? Close quote. Religious faith is not just a feel-good experience. It is one that grows by faithful service and discipline. C.S. Lewis teases that sometimes we act as if, quote, We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Close quote. Heavenly Father has a great work for us to do. Remember the internalization process that we spoke of earlier. Children who experience their parents' reasonable expectations for learning to work hard will come to expect themselves to work hard and know the inner confidence that comes with a job well done. Consider now the combination of love and firmness from psychological research in parenting of capable, competent children conducted by Diana Bomrand. These are classic investigations, and they emphasize the combination of parents' clear love and commitment to their children, their equally clear expectations for behavioral control and discipline, and respect for their children's individuality. I have sometimes typified these elements in a mnemonic—love, limits, and latitude. In other words, parents of the most competent children are saying, in effect, we love you and we want you to belong with us. We also accept the obligation to help you learn to grow into responsible maturity in our family and our community. But we know that you are an individual with feelings and tastes of your own. We will need to talk a lot to explain our reasons for our expectations, and we welcome your discussing with us your age-appropriate right to choose. It's interesting to note that Baumrand initially found three styles of parenting—authoritarian, authoritative, and permissive parents. I have been describing authoritative parents. Later analysis of the data, however, highlighted another effective parenting style—what she called harmonious parents. Quote. Harmonious parents seem neither to exercise control nor to avoid the exercise of control. Instead, they focused on achieving a quality of harmony in the home and upon developing principles for resolving differences and for right living." These harmonious principles appear to be particularly critical in adolescence. When teenagers are suddenly intellectually capable of being critical of parental rules, while perhaps not yet understanding other moderating circumstances. In that situation, research indicates that the least amount of parental control required to get them to comply with an unpleasant request is most likely to be later internalized as their own value. Let me say that again. In adolescence, the least amount of parental control necessary to get obedience will be most likely to foster internalization of parental values. Back for a moment to Dr. William Damon's research. He expanded upon Baumrind and others as he considered the particular requirements in fostering morality. He emphasized that it is the child's love for his parents that establishes an emotional foundation for respect for authority. Parents must be willing to confront inappropriate behavior, he suggested, with explanations for how it was wrong and how it can be made right. And children will learn moral values by active participation in relationships, not lessons or lectures in which they are passive recipients. The quality of interactions, both with adults and with peers, will teach much more enduring lectures uh, lessons than any indoctrination or verbal directives. Damon has some warnings for parents as well. First, parents ought not over-intrude into their children's experiences. Children who are not permitted to thoughtfully make their own decisions do not develop trust in their own sensitivities, and they are being taught that their feelings don't matter much. And children who are protected by parents' intrusion into possibly deserved unpleasant consequences do not learn self-control. We have considered attachment as a general process. I'd like to go back to that process now as we examine an extrapolation. Infants, in the first two or three months of life, and certainly throughout the first year, engage in an activity with people that is called interactive synchrony. The infant looks into her mother's eyes and smiles or makes a noise to which the mother responds. Mom talks back with vocalizations or facial expressions in turn, which then draws another response from the infant. This trading back and forth between the adult and infant of eye contact, facial expressions, and vocalizations is like a duet or dance of emotional interaction. It's the source of sometimes what we call motherese, that language of inflections that we all smile at when we hear but we are equally likely to do in the same situation. Oh, you cute little sweetheart. What a wonderful smile you have. I know how to do it well. I saw a little Caleb Karpowitz At about six months of age perched on a table during a church meeting recently safely held by his mother trying to engage his neighbor the Sunday school president as if he were saying do you want to play with me do you want to talk back and forth with me and smile and lifted eyebrows and noises now let's expand the concept perhaps the process of synchrony continues throughout life as some researchers suggest in conversation sharing experiences in whatever we mean when we talk of connecting with someone or staying in touch. Perhaps in order to continue a certain depth of attachment, people have a need to continue to experience synchrony. One Sunday, following church meetings, I spread myself in the Sunday newspaper on the floor to read the comic strips. At the same time, my son then about four, wanted my attention to show me something he could do. I barely looked up from the paper and continued to read. Being a smart boy with initiative, he walked over, lay down in the middle of my paper with a large grin on his face about two inches from mine, determined that he was going to get the attention—synchrony, if you will—that he wanted. It was a simple act for a trusting young child, but not so simple, perhaps, for a teenager. So what happens when we get out of sync with our adolescent when we haven't danced with him long enough to know how he's really feeling? It's a natural age of some disengagement from parents on his part and coincidentally a time when parents are often very busy in that part of their own life cycle. So parents may lose touch with their teenagers. Moreover, it's a time which research shows is most sensitive for the disruption of religious faith. Indeed, research in the LDS Church shows that the time period in which we are most likely to lose young people from, in, from activity in church is ages 14 and 15. Now what happens when busy parents and busy children out of sync with one another collide on the subject of religion? If parents are punishing and controlling at a time when their adolescent may be feeling hurt because of social failures, mom and dad's lack of understanding may emphasize a decision that I can't talk to them, they don't care about me, they just care how it looks to others if I miss church. Well, you can see my point. Psychologists have found that adolescents in so-called corporate families, in which their fathers were deeply absorbed in their careers in the corporation, often saw Dad as too physically exhausted or emotionally drained to play an active part in the family. They described him as passive, uninvolved, disinterested, and remote. And the adolescents resented the corporation which has taken their father from them. It takes no imagination to substitute busy church leader for corporate executive. At the end of a long Sunday. Physically exhausted or emotionally drained is an apt description. My own children, adolescent or not, could tell you of too many instances in which, to my own chagrin, I have simply not paid my dues to understand or be in sync with them. And I've said something in anger or an ill-advised attempt to control them, and I can almost immediately see my wife wincing as she says to herself, You bull in a china shop, you're breaking a lot of dishes. You don't know what's going on here, and you don't know what we've already talked about. So she moves into damage control to protect them and me from further harm. What to do? Well, Nietzsche is supposed to have offered one of my favorite quotes. Love is a long conversation. There is simply no substitute or non-conflict talk time spent together to recreate synchrony, to understand one another and learn one another's dance. If for no other reason it should be one of our chief justifications for the importance of mothers, when they can, to be able to stay home, to be there when each family member comes in and out of the house, to be the constant emotional source of understanding helping to pull it all together and maintaining that sense of synchrony. Research indicates it is so. Girls would rather talk to their mothers when they have a problem, and boys would rather talk to their mothers when they have a problem. In a recent church meeting, a mother, after describing her sorrow at their oldest son's disaffection from the Church, explained her daily routine with the youngest child who's still at home. Quote, I always try to be home from 2.20 to 3 p.m., for that is when my 17-year-old son, who is 6 feet 3 inches tall, comes home from school. I fix him something to eat, and we sit and talk. I don't do anything else. Just sit and listen. He tells me about his day at school, his joys and sorrows and frustration. I tell him how much I love and appreciate him. He then goes on with his schoolwork, peaceful and contented. If we ignore our children and do not give them the attention that they need to feel that they are in sync with us, they may either increase their efforts to do good ways, to do in good ways to get attention, or get attention by doing bad things, or worse still, wall off, give up, and no longer seek our attention, feeling alienated from us. If a power conflict develops, each party to the conflict is gradually more and more likely to gravitate to using as a weapon the values that mean most to the other. Parents ground the 16 year old from the car and his friends. The 16 year old, yep, you guessed it, he boycotts church. Some years ago, following a talk I gave about the concept of faith, I was approached by an older gentleman who observed, and I'll try to paraphrase him. You know, young man, I've lived a long time and I've learned that there are only so many things that you can get done with the time that you have. You have to choose carefully where you're going to put your energies. you said some nice things tonight about using faith to accomplish worthwhile goals, like learning to play the piano. But you didn't talk at all about faith in Christ. I hope I never forget how stunned I felt. I think of the Pharisees' meticulous care in observing the law while all along failing to recognize the Christ. The whole aim of tradition, of religious culture, is to point our souls to Christ. In our parenting, if we teach only morals, or church activity, or cultural tradition, we will have fallen terribly short of what must be our goal, to teach our children faith in Christ, that they will turn to Him for salvation, for it is He after all, not us, that will write His law in their hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information.